Well, good morning. I'm going to sit and just imagine the the response from you this morning. The silence is deafening in this room for me. Uh, I pray that as you're hearing this message, that you and your families are doing well, uh, that you're staying safe uh, and hopefully not going too stir-crazy at this point in your homes. I have been feeling increasingly encouraged lately as I've had several opportunities in uh, virtual online ways to see people and interact and pray together, study together, just here in the past week. And that's all happened as we as a church have started adjusting to all of this a little bit more. And before we begin, I wanted you to know about those opportunities that many have been able to benefit from already. So some things are starting back up. The the men's Saturday morning book study group is continuing. Uh, we meet at 7 a.m. on Saturday mornings. We're studying right now through the book Disciplines of a Godly Man by R. Kent Hughes. We're doing that, and I think each of these I'll mention are being done through the application called Zoom. Um, the men's Sunday morning Bible study group it has not started yet, but a week from this morning it will be uh, starting back up. Uh, at 9.30 each Sunday morning, uh, and we're going through the book of 1 John. Dennis is leading us through 1 John. Uh, most, if not all, I think, of the care group meetings are now meeting again in this virtual format. It, it was so great for our whole family this past Wednesday evening to sit together and see into, I think it was 12 different homes, uh, get to hear how everybody is doing right now, get to see everybody's faces and spend time praying together as a care group. It was just very, um, very much of a shot in the arm for us, very encouraging. And I really want to encourage any of you who may not have belonged to a care group before all of this, that there is, uh, and always has been, but certainly is now, an open invitation from each of the four care groups. So please consider making use of the, the those means of fellowship uh, and remember that it doesn't just serve, although I think it will, uh, serve to encourage you, uh, but remember that it also gives you an opportunity to be of service to others. You serve a vital role in this family. God has gifted you with gifts uh, to be used to bless the rest of you, of your local body, and we just don't have many means right now of doing that for each other. So we certainly want to be faithful with the means that he has given us. The leaders of those groups are Seth Thomason, Blake Autry, Bobby File, and Mark Stewart. Mark leads the Canyon Care Group. So please do bear that in mind and just ask if you have any questions or want more information. Uh, Now, with that announcement done, let's turn our focus together to God's Word this morning. And I'll ask you to open with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to uh, read verses 6 to 11 to begin our time, but we're going to dwell only on verses 6 and 7 in particular this morning, so pay close attention to the first two verses I read here, but I'll read the entire uh, section here, verses 6 to 11, for the context and, and what he says here is just very encouraging for us right now. So beginning in verse 6 of 1 Peter 5, this is what the word of the Lord has for us this morning to start with. Peter writes this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And before we go any further, let me stop and pray for us all as we now sit under his word preached. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for another morning, another week, another opportunity to worship you. We know um, all the more, all the time, uh, how much we have lost right now to not be able to gather together and worship corporately. But we thank you, Lord, that wherever we are, we are still able to worship you privately and to worship you in our homes and with our families. We thank you for that. Lord, as we now turn our attention to this passage, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would guard us in our minds as we handle it, as we submit to it. Lord, I pray that you would guard me as I preach and that for all of us, Lord, you would feed us richly through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just reread for us verses 6 and 7. They said this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. It's probably obvious the reasons that um, I have been spending time lately with this passage And this morning, I'm going to make you follow me through a rabbit trail that it sent me on. It was very encouraging and helpful, and I pray that it will be so for you as well. So we have started here in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. We will end back up here, but in between, I'm going to take you to several other places. So a Bible in hand, ready to be turning this morning. This is not a live cast, but that doesn't mean that it is not interactive. (laughs) So there there will be interaction this morning in that way. And the reason that we're going to move around kind of a lot this morning, at least for the first part of of our time uh, in God's Word, is to try to understand better one specific word, an idea that is captured in a specific word that appears in verse 7 here. It's the verb that in verse 7 is translated, He cares. Because he cares for you. In in the Greek, that he cares is the word mele. Mele. This is an interesting word. It means to care, to be concerned, to give your attention to. That word is used eight times in the New Testament. Six of those eight times stand in some reference to Jesus. And then there are two other uh, uses that have other reference. Uh, This morning, I'm going to lead us through all eight of those appearances of this word. We're going to walk through them, some of them very quickly, and the goal is going to simply be to pick up along the way a clearer sense of what this word means in general, but also as we see how it's used in reference to our Lord, 
uh, to understand more just exactly what it means when it tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5 that he cares for us. And I don't intend to do all of this uh, walking through these eight passages for dramatic effect. I hope it doesn't seem like that. I, I want us to have a clearer picture in our minds of what this is telling us when it says of God that he cares for us. And I think that what this will do is to create some proper distinctions in our minds that we really do well to maintain uh, and, in fact, to even fight for in our thought lives. So I'll have us begin with the two times we see this word used about somebody else besides Jesus. The first of these we see in John chapter 12, verse 6. Turn over to John 12. I'm going to read verses 3 to 6. And you'll notice something uh, in common about the two uses here that we see uh, where this is pointing to somebody else. Uh, The first one is John 12. Let me read verses 3 to 6. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And stop there. Now you can see our word appearing in verse 6. It says... uh, concerning Judas, that he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. What do we uh, gain in understanding this word and this idea from this particular example? Do you see the point of what this is telling us about Judas? The point is that Judas here is acting like the poor are a priority to him. He's acting like the poor are on his mind and that their well-being matters to him. And in particular, their well-being matters to him in a way that has now led him to action. It's led him to speak up and to object, right? And John is clarifying for us here that in spite of the appearances, that was not the reason that Judas said what he said. He said this, it says, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. Okay, now just tuck, so tuck that away and turn with me to the next passage here. Turn to Acts 18. I'll start to read in verse 12. Acts 18:12. We come in here amid one of Paul's many battles as he is spreading the gospel. Here he is in the city of Corinth. He has stayed there for roughly a year and a half. And starting in verse 12, this is what we read. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, So notice the picture we get of Gallio here. Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. 
and he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now stop there. Can you find where this word that we are studying, where this word appears in our passage here? <coughs> it's translated a little bit differently. It may be hard for you to find. The word shows up in verse 17. The last thing we read where it said that Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So now what's being said here about Gallio? Well, something's being said about his apathy toward the Jews in general. I mean, you can see that. But especially his apathy toward this man named Sosthenes, isn't it? In their frustration, the Jews grab hold of Sosthenes and begin to beat him. And Gallio reacts, how? I read to you from the ESV. The ESV said he paid no attention to any of it. The New American Standard Bible translates it and says that he was not concerned about it. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says none of these things concerned Gallio. So again, we have here someone being said to not melee. He did not melee. And the result is of this... The result is that there is no commitment to well-being. There is no concern or regard for the outcome of this for Sosthenes. This is what we are to understand as this word is used here toward Gallio. And these are the two instances of this word that have nothing to do with Jesus. So that's why we're moving pretty quickly past them. But they do help us to have a sense of what this word means. These are situations that involve Concern. You could even say at this point, emotional concern. They involve regard for someone's well-being. It is a priority of mind, in other words, that's being spoken of here, and a priority of mind that reflects itself in subsequent action, right? Action or inaction, depending on whether someone melees or doesn't melee. Now, Let's move now to the six uses of this word that arise in some relation to Jesus. The first two of them I'd call, and uh, I'd call them indirect references to Jesus. Uh, the first one here will refer to God generally, but not to the person of Jesus specifically, like the last four will. So let's move next here to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Find 1 Corinthians 9, verses. I'm going to read verses 8 to 10. Paul is asking questions here. Starting in verse 8, he asks this, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? There's our word. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And stop there. Now, this example is really helpful in what we're doing. It starts to narrow us into the intent behind this statement. It asks here in verse 9, Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Now, what is think with me here. What is being said about God in reference to these oxen? Clearly, the expected answer to this rhetorical question is no. 
right? The, the answer we're supposed to give to the question, is it for oxen that God is concerned? The answer we're supposed to give is no. What is the point that he's making here? Is, is this telling us that God cares nothing in any way for the oxen that he has created? Is that the idea? Of course, that is not the point that Paul is making. The idea that is being conveyed to us here is one of priority, of the source of motivation for what God does. Did he give, in this case, did he give that law out of a desire to care for the oxen? Well, the law does accomplish that, doesn't it? Uh, Oxen were helped in the passing of this law. But Paul's point is that this was not the main motivation in God's giving this law. He was not speaking for the sake of the oxen, but for our sake. Verse 10 tells us that. He was speaking for our sake. Yes, he says, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. So God was speaking here in a way that reflected a concern for us. That is, a concern for our well-being. And what this verse adds to our understanding is this. Even in giving us the law, God's actions are conducted in a way that reflects concern for his people. Now, as we move through these different passages, we'll come back here and be compiling and thinking about these things together. Are you ready to keep moving, though? Uh, Go now, turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 10, verses 11 to 13. And I apologize for the coughing I'm having to do here, right in your ears. John 10, let me read verses 11 to 13. See if you can pick out where our word comes in, where the word mele is going to appear here. This is Jesus speaking now. We're getting closer and closer, uh, as it were, into the person of Jesus. John 10, starting in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, because the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Excuse me. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And in verse 15, it ends the thought by saying, I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, our word that we're searching out, you probably found it. It's found in verse 13. right? And this is spoken in reference to the hired hand. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. He, Mele, nothing for the sheep. And by contrast, Jesus is the good shepherd. Now, at one level, it certainly conveys the same thing um, that we have already seen in other passages. Jesus is concerned for the sheep's welfare, isn't he? He cares for their well-being. But let's use what we learned back in 1 Corinthians 9 about God and the oxen. It's just like that here. What do you think that, for example, that hired hand, if we could bring him in and talk to him about this, what would he say if we explained to him that he was unconcerned for the sheep's welfare in any way? There were probably some really awful uh, hired hands who would admit, if they're telling the truth, they would say, yeah, you're right, I don't care. 
but I think a great number of them might be a bit offended by that. I spend a lot of time with these sheep. I'm concerned for for their well-being. If, if that causes us to stumble, I would say we're, we're missing the point here that Jesus is making in this distinction. The distinction Jesus is making between himself as the good shepherd and his hired hand is found in verse 12. And it is vital that we see this. Look back at verse 12. What is said about the hired hand there? Do you see that it says that he does not own the sheep? Here's the point we're supposed to take from this. Jesus has an entirely different relationship to these sheep than the hired hand does. We could very accurately describe this by saying this is the difference between a contract and a covenant. We have to think in terms of covenantal understanding if we're going to get Jesus' point here. The Bible tells us that Jesus was given a people by God. Or in our context here, we could say Jesus was given a flock, right? Jesus is our covenant head. Now, how can we convey the nature of this unique relationship that exists because of that? Well, Jesus does it in this passage we're in by speaking of his role as owner of the sheep. He is speaking in terms of covenantal commitment. The hired hand may in fact have emotional concern, maybe even strong emotional concern for the sheep. But for the hired hand, because of the nature of his relationship with the sheep, there's always something more pressing that might come along. Namely, avoiding getting eaten by a wolf. (laughs) Which of us is going to fault the hired hand for not getting eaten by a wolf, uh, but running away when the wolf comes? But what Jesus is saying about himself, by contrast here, is that there is a concern in him that goes beyond the emotional. Jesus has committed himself to his sheep by way of covenant. This is what we must understand about our Lord. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that this word mele we're talking about this morning, I'm not saying that this word for caring means all of this about covenants and commitments. What I'm saying is that John chapter 10 here helps us to see the context in which Jesus cares for us. He cares in the sort of way we understand when we think of covenantal relationships. It is a care that goes far beyond emotional reactions, doesn't it? We, in our own family context, we exist in covenantal relationships. I have a covenantal relationship with my spouse and with my kids And in those sorts of close relationships, isn't it true that emotions can wax and wane sometimes? (laughs) Um, But the nature of the relationship means one fundamental truth, and that is that I am committed to that person's well-being forever. That person stands at a place of unique priority to me because of the nature of our relationship. That is what stands behind Jesus' care for his sheep, and we see it clearly there in John chapter 10. Now, I'm still calling that one an indirect reference to Jesus out of these eight that we're going through, because technically speaking, when it used the word, it was talking about the hired hand in verse 13, but Jesus is making a strong point about himself by way of contrast there. And I hope that that's very obvious in what he's doing when he's talking about himself as the good shepherd. The rest of these of these references will refer directly to Jesus. 
And listen, as we as we keep moving closer and closer into the person of Jesus in these examples, we must see that these truths are what you and I and your family and your neighbors need to know about Jesus today in our present context. Look with me at these four remaining passages. The fourth one that we'll get to, of course, will be our First Peter 5 passage that we return to. The next two of these are very similar. In fact, we'll bundle them together. And if you'd like, you can just listen to me read them instead of turning there. Uh, one of them is Luke chapter 10, verse 40. Uh, and this time, uh, Jesus is dealing with Martha, as in Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He's staying at Martha's home. And in verse 40, uh, as he's teaching, here's what we read. It says, But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. And that sounds a lot like this next one, which is Mark 4, verses 37 and 38. And Jesus and his disciples are in a boat. You'll recognize this story. A great storm has arisen. Mark 4, 37 and 38 say this, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, we have already had the benefit of hearing Jesus' own words in John chapter 10 about being the good shepherd. We also have the benefit of knowing how this story is going to end. Think with me, just using that knowledge, about these two accusations that we hear from Martha and from the disciples. What do you think about their accusation that the Lord Jesus does not care about their circumstances and their present trouble? I mean, this, this question, do you not care, Given to Jesus in the scope of the narrative of the Gospels, this is a striking question. It is the it's irony of the worst kind, really, to hear such a question posed to the Lord Jesus Christ: "Do you not care?" Now, the seventh of the eight uses of this word "melee" is spoken as well about something that Jesus does not care about. And this is interesting. This is spoken by his opponents, but they managed to say a couple of true things about Jesus here. This I'm going to read from Matthew 22:16, and thank you for sticking with me. This is the seventh of the eight uh, uses. So we're just about done uh, flipping back and forth in our Bibles. Matthew 22:16. This same story appears in Mark chapter 12 as well, but I'll read Matthew 22. Verse 16, and this is what we read. Teacher, words spoken to Jesus. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. And stop there. Now, the context of this tells us these are enemies of Jesus, not his followers, and they're trying to trick him. And yet what they say about him here is true. Jesus does not melee about the opinions of man. He does not care. 
about their opinions. That is not what concerns him. And this does beg the question for us uh, that we're going to use to come back now to our final passage that we will settle on. We're going to take all of, of the contexts we've heard in these other passages uh, and, and let this final one beg the question for us, well, what does he care about then in these ways? When the Bible speaks about the cares of Jesus, what does it say? So turn back with me now. We'll spend the rest of our time this morning in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. And while you're turning there, I'll just thank you for following me down that rabbit trail. You didn't have much of a choice, but thank you for for uh, for going there with me. Uh, we're going to take those things we've seen and put them to use now in this passage. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, he's been calling them to humility. In verse 5, he called them to humility towards each other. And beginning in verse 6, again, we've read this a couple of times, here's what we read. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Now I hope that going through those other appearances of this word will have served to increase our sense of the value of that statement at the end of verse 7. Now, we have seen this morning, Jesus does not care about the opinions of man. Jesus is not concerned about oxen. We've seen men and women in moments of crisis question the care of the Lord Jesus. We've seen this word involve being concerned with or having a care for someone that reflects priority and that affects subsequent action. It's a care that leads to action. But now when the scriptures open up and declare to us the care of Jesus, what does it say here? In reference to our circumstances, it in fact says, He cares for us. And we'll start here by just reflecting for a moment on that. I mean, the power of that statement. How heavy a weight has God's word just spared us from? What a significant question that this answers for us. The question that comes to us in our moments of greatest trial. What could possibly matter more to us in all the world than the answer to this question? I mean, even as believers, there are times in the darkness of night where this question will burn within us and keep us awake. As we're suffering in circumstances, we, we ask the question at times, does he, does he care about my circumstances? And of all the mysteries of the hidden will of God, on this matter, he declares it plainly. He says to us here, He cares for you. Now we need to look very carefully together at the passage because as encouraging as this is simply to hear that He cares for us, can you see from verse 7 that Peter's main concern is not simply that we would know of Jesus' care. Can you see that? Because the statement comes after the word because. It says, because He cares for you. And that means that Peter is telling us about the concern of Jesus as a reason for something else. We see a piece of it just by looking at verse 7 uh, alone in its entirety. Verse 7 says, Casting all your anxieties on him 
because he cares for you. In other words, our knowledge of his genuine care for us is meant to lead us to cast our anxieties upon him. Now, there are two aspects of this verse that we need to notice very intentionally. Uh, several translations of in this verse of our anxieties and his care uh, have several translations have decided to use the same English word so that it comes out like this. So, and this is even in some of our songs. It, it says in some translations, cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. You see how it would use the same word for, for the first and, and the second. And that isn't a bad translation, but it is intentionally poetic to translate it that way. And it can create some confusion because they are not the same word as Peter wrote them originally. What he is telling us here is Jesus cares for us. He mele for us. He's concerned for us. And on the basis of that truth, we ought to cast our anxieties upon him. And some translations intentionally uh, phrase it that way. They use the word anxieties. Cast our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. It's a good translation. The, that word anxieties, I mean the word that's used there, uh, is in fact the same word. It's the noun form of the word we see in Philippians 4.6 where we are told, interestingly enough, do not be anxious about anything. Now, would you humor me for a moment? We'll take advantage of this technology we're using here. I'll ask you to pause this for just a moment. And if you would, by yourself, or do this with your family and out loud if you're with others, uh, flip back and forth. Do this two times. Go between 1 Peter 5.7 and Philippians 4.6. Read each of them aloud. And read, do that two times before you push play and we continue. All right? Okay, I'm trusting you that you've done that. <laughs> now, so you've heard both of those passages and you know that the same word family is at, at work in both. I want to suggest to us that we can make the following statement on the basis of these two verses. And that statement is this. It is not the emergence of anxieties that is at issue. In Philippians 4, 6, when it says, do not be anxious about anything, it's not the emergence of anxieties in our life that's at issue. It is what we do with anxieties that's at issue. In fact, 1 Peter 5, 7, I mean, in that passage, he's actually assuming that we have these anxieties, isn't he? When he says, casting all your anxieties upon him, his command concerns what you do with those anxieties. Take them. Peter writes, and cast them on to him. And, and by the way, what a visual way to say that. He doesn't say, as he could, he doesn't say, cast your anxieties at his feet. He literally says, cast them upon him. And he is, he is finding his place in the flow of, the, of, of God's own account of himself in Scripture when he does that. Because our God is and has always been a God who bears the weights of his people for them and who is proud of that and who speaks of himself in that way. He does so in a number of places. Just to give you two examples, Psalm 55:22 says this, Cast your burdens on the Lord and he shall sustain you. Psalm 68:19 similarly says this, 
Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. This is how he has described himself. When we trust in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, we are trusting in him as the Good Shepherd, the one who cares for us. Now, if I believe that, I'm going to cast my anxieties upon him. That's the connection that we see Paul making in verse 7. There's one more thing I want you to take note of before we expand backward. We're going to add verse 6 into our thinking. But before we do that, let me let me note one more thing. Uh, which anxieties are we commanded to cast on him? Look back at verse 7. Which anxieties does it tell us to cast on him? <coughs> do you see that it says there in verse 7, casting what? Casting all your anxieties on him. In fact, Peter goes out of his way to make that explicit. The word all there is placed emphatically at the start of the sentence, which is the common way something was especially emphasized in Greek. You took whatever you wanted to emphasize and moved it to the beginning. It's called emphatic position. And Peter's done that here with the word all. What he writes is, all your anxieties casting upon him. And I want I want you to think with me carefully about this this morning. There is something in that fact that can protect us from a thought that may sometimes arise even unconsciously. And it's the thought about God, that God cares. He cares for matters that relate to eternity, but maybe not so much for the temporal matters that face us every day. Have you ever struggled with that sort of a feeling or a thought? I mean, after all, God is aware of the worst of all sufferings that are happening across the globe right now and have ever happened in human history. He's aware of that level of human suffering. Could he really care about the struggles and sufferings that I'm dealing with in my day? Maybe he cares about eternal matters for me, but doesn't care as much about the temporal There is something in this verse that protects us from that thought, because that thought is not true. And there's an example that has always stuck with me. C.S. Lewis gave an example um, in one of his Narnia books. Uh, I have never forgotten, ever since the first time I read it. Uh, It's in in my favorite of the Narnia books, called The Magician's Nephew. Uh, In an encounter between a boy named Diggory and Aslan. Of course, Aslan is the Christ figure in these stories. And at, at the point I'm thinking of, Aslan had just created Narnia. Diggory is there. He's been watching Aslan. He doesn't really know him at all. But he has seen him as cosmically mighty and powerful. Uh, and Diggory, meanwhile here, has been tasked with some jobs to do by Aslan. But all that Diggory really cares about is his mother back home, who is very sick. In fact, she's dying. Diggory is consumed with concern for her. And finally, in desperation, he says to Aslan, he says, Yes, Aslan, but please, would you give me something to help my mother? And it says in in the story that up until then... Um, He'd been looking down at the lion's feet, but at that moment, in despair, he looks up at Aslan's face. And it says what he saw was that the lion's eyes were filled with great tears. And it says that in, in that sight, 
Diggory suddenly got the sense that Aslan cared about his mother much more than even Diggory did himself. I mean, it is a beautiful, powerful moment. And it is this type of concern, it's that type of care that I think we can be tempted to question or at least to fail to appreciate. It's the allness of that all that Peter is emphasizing here in this verse. And the rationale he gives to help us is to state that it is right for us to take all of our anxieties and cast them upon him. It's right for us to do that. The reason it's right Brothers and sisters, friends, the reason that it's right is because he cares for you. He truly is concerned with the concerns of our lives, all of them. And so he beckons us to cast them all upon him. Now we're moving now toward closing this morning, but we'll do that by seeing where Paul's words in verse 7 relate to what he said in verse 6. Maybe you've noticed that verse 7 started in the middle of a sentence. It's not its own idea. It's finishing the idea that started in verse 6. That's why we have to see them together. And this is what, we, what, what we're looking at as the entire idea. Verse 6, together with verse 7, said, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. There is just one simple but crucial point to understand here as we bring verse 6 into what we have seen. And that is, I mean, we need to recognize that the decision we're hearing about to cast all our anxieties on him because of his care for us, that decision is in fact a means of humbling ourselves before God. Specifically, it says, humbling ourselves under his mighty hand. Do you see that? This, is, this has to do with humbling ourselves under the recognition that his hand is the one at work in our circumstances. I appreciated reading in, in Wayne Grudem's commentary on this passage something that he said about this. He, he said, if God opposes the proud, it is true wisdom to humble oneself before him. Now listen to how Grudem Uh, uses this verse to lay out what it means to humble oneself before him. Grudem continues and says, Among other things, this will involve bowing to God's wisdom, accepting the twists and turns of his providence, and entrusting all our concerns to him. Are we in a moment in our lives right now, my friends, where we must consider whether or not we accept the twists and turns of the providence of God, whether we recognize his hand as the mighty hand in our day and bow before the twists and turns of his providence. This is what verse 6 brings into verse 7. When trouble comes to me and it brings its anxieties into my life, as as trouble always does, I need to respond to it in a way that is bowed before his mighty hand before the mighty hand of his providence. What's that look like, Peter? Well, Peter says the way we do that is to immediately and repeatedly cast those anxieties upon him. And I will do that if I am convinced that, verse 6, his hand is the one guiding my life. And, verse 7, I really can trust him 
because I know that he cares for me. So let me ask you as we close this morning, how have you been this week? What has been revealed in you in the past couple of weeks? How have you evaluated the thoughts that have come across the surface of your mind? And our passage this morning gives us something of a grid, really, for us to pass all of our experiences through. This, this calls us to some things. Number one, to remember that the mighty hand of God is the one driving the course of our lives forward. Number two, to acknowledge that he is Lord and humble ourselves before him by taking the anxieties that come and entrusting them to his care. And number three, to believe his invitation to do this with all of our anxieties. On the basis of this promise, he cares about you. He has concern for your anxieties. His attention is, in fact, turned toward you. Remember uh, Gallio in the book of Acts? He cared nothing for what was happening. It said he paid no attention to what was happening to Sosthenes. That is precisely what this says is not true of our God. He is not blind to our anxieties, and he most certainly is not apathetic toward them. And in the midst of the moments when we need this the most, we cling, full of hope, to the promises that bookend these statements that we have seen in 1 Peter 5 this morning. And we have two promises on the front and back of this. Verse 6 ended with a statement we haven't given attention to yet. Look back at verse 6 there. We may be low, enduring obediently under the hand of God. But how does verse 6 end? With a promise. At the proper time, he will exalt us. Do we trust his decision about what the proper time is? And our passage is bookended on the back end in verse 10. Verse 10 speaks to Peter's original audience who are suffering greatly and tells them what God has planned for all of his children. Verse 10 says this, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And knowing these things, fixing our confidence in those things, we joyfully conclude just like Peter does in verse 11. We say then, of anything that will come to us, well then, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Where else would we rather it be? Praise be to God for his faithfulness to us. Would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, we understand that your word is food to us. It is life for us. It is a great and precious treasure to us. Father, thank you for the richness you have poured out upon us this morning as we have been able to feast on your word, to take the encouragement, the strengthening, that you give us through it. Father, I pray for all of us that we would be faithful with your word, that we would take these things and hide them in our hearts, let them change us, so that the whole world would see a fundamentally different people, a people full of hope and joy, because our confidence is not in ourselves or in our circumstances. Our confidence is seated at your right hand, and there's not a thing that anything in this world can do about that. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Let me dismiss us here with a benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ.